The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion hosted by Michael Guyot. My name is Michael Guyot, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Join me there, Mr. Dan Ferris. Dan, interested of the audience, you've been involved in markets for a while, but uh, who are you? What's your background? How did you get involved in markets? How did you link up with Stansberry? And what do you do currently? All right. Who I am cur- currently is the editor of a publication called Extreme Value. It's a monthly newsletter published by Stansberry and and of another one called The Farish Report, also monthly, also published by Stansberry. And I'm the host of the Stansberry Investor Hour podcast, where you and I spoke not too terribly long ago. And I got involved with this in the early 90s. I didn't start with Stansberry until he founded the company in like 2000, I think it was. I was like the fourth or fifth employee of that company. And before that, though, I had been just exploring markets on my own. I tried commodity trading. I got my ass handed to me. And then I backed off from that. And I made a little bit of money in gold stocks in the mid-90s there. There was a decent little run up there. And mostly, I, I started out, I think, the way a lot of people do. Like, you start out thinking, well, the job is to predict which way prices are going to go. So how do we do that? And then like fast forward to the early 2000s. And by then I had read Ben Graham and talked to a bunch of folks and met some different investors. And and I started doing things differently. And for a while, I was like a traditional looking for discounts to book value guy, but that didn't last. And I became somebody who was looking to buy good businesses at reasonable prices, pretty much, or dirt cheap if I could find it. And I started working for Porter Stansberry in like maybe September of 2000 already. Wow, it's been a while. And we just, I, I've, I've stuck around the whole time because it's a great place to work. And today, that's what I'm doing. I'm doing the two newsletters. And I, one of them, Extreme Value is a bottom-up individual stock picking services. And the, the, the Farish Report is like more top-down. I'm more concerned about interest rates and inflation and all kinds of what I call macro and micro trends, trends within certain industries and then overall economic trends as well. Is, so there, is it fair to say that top-down is less actionable than than bottom-up, right? Because I feel like a lot of people yeah. talk about macro and they always talk about endpoints. I always go back to it's really ultimately about paths, not about it's the dance in between the endpoints, not the, not mm-hmm. the end itself that matters. So which you find is more valuable in terms of Portfolio construction. 
oh, bottom up. Like investing to me is purely a bottom up enterprise. That that you're right. The top down is tough. And I'll tell you something, Michael. If it hadn't been for, if it weren't for like these extreme moments, like dot com peak and two thousand eight, and you know what I would call like late twenty twenty one, early twenty twenty two. If it wasn't for those moments. I probably wouldn't care about macro so much because for years, one of the things I did for years was I knew that Ben Graham and Warren Buffett and all these guys, they had these ways of thinking about the value of the overall market, like market cap to GDP and stuff. And I thought, well, that's something I should do, right? I should know when the market's cheap and when it's not. But what I found out is that's all worthless. It has no value whatsoever except at the extremes, right? That dot com peak, et cetera. And, and we hit a huge extreme in late 21, early 22. And I was like, well, we don't get out of this. I called that thing and I still call it the most, the biggest financial mega bubble in all recorded history, because that's what you get on the back of the lowest interest rates in all recorded history. And I was like, well, things got, we don't get out of this easy. So that's why I started paying more attention to macro and on the way up to that too. I, I was paying more attention to it. But you're absolutely right. I'm As an investor, to me, it's just a bottom-up enterprise and the macro is something I feel. Yeah, I, th- I think also macro just maybe it helps with assessing the the risk of being whipsawed. Right? I think that's, that's another way to think about how macro as a backdrop impacts a portfolio. And whipsaw risk is obviously more for active traders, but it, it is, you, you have to know the, the macro to get a sense of the likelihood of tailwind or headwind dynamics of whatever your opportunity set is. Right. So, and, and that's, that's exactly right. So you look at it and you assess risk, right? That's what, that's what it's about to me. I learned to assess risk some time ago rather than just trying to find the next uptrend. And in assessing risk, you go, hmm, let's see. Lowest interest rates in 5,000 years. Gosh, bonds seem awfully darn risky. And by various measures, there's not a lot of measures that work great for the overall market. Cape ratio actually does a decent job of picking out the bubbles, right? You, you, you can see the 29 peak and the 2000 peak and the, the 2022, the 2122 sort of peak. You can see them plain as day. The rest of the charts pretty worthless, but you can see it. And you can see price to sales on the S&P 500. That's a pretty decent chart that will show you the peaks, the, the real big bubble moments. And I was like, hmm, okay, so everything's expensive here. And we've got this like from 20, 21, 22, we've got this kind of what looks to me like a massive top brewing. So I better be careful and I better get macro aware. I keep making stock picks. So we, we have to do both right now. In my opinion, we have to. So you joined Sainsbury in 2000, tech bubble starts to deflate back then. Very volatile. I'm sure it was an interesting experience, to put it lightly. Take us back a little bit during that during that tech wreck, during that bubble. As somebody who was you know, part of this company that was growing against uh, an environment that was you know, very questionable for internet stocks. Yeah, so the company started with Porter starting his first newsletter. And he was like, back then, he was into George Gilder, man. He was buying all the hottest tech stuff. And I think that's how he's, the, the company started out with a really good spurt of growth for about a year or so there. And then, of course, the, the bust came. But we made it through that. And he, he added all kinds of other products that did okay. We started, 
we started a value investing newsletter in September of 2002. That was a pretty darn good moment for value. So we got some momentum under us with that. But you're right. It was a like to point out that moment, I'm saying you're right, because it was it was a real education. We're a handful of people. It's a brand new business. Now, it was a, a, a business inside of another business, right? We weren't just, it wasn't just us at our desks at home. It was us inside of a larger publisher. And then we later separated from that publisher. So that helped a hell of a lot. But we kept going, man, and, and, and did really well. It's a great yeah, company. I've had Porter on one of these spaces a few months ago. I'm a big fan of the way that he communicates things. Obviously, he's done very well for himself. With mm-hmm. with the business overall, all yeah. right. So I want to I want to I want to talk about the idea of the Fed getting things right and wrong because everyone always piles on them for what they do wrong. Yep. Um, and I want to first go attached to that period in the late nineties to early two thousands. There are some that would argue that that real blow off that happened in the Nasdaq into March of two thousand was the delayed response of Greenspan lowering rates or trying to liquefy, as I recall. Because he was afraid of Y2K, mm-hmm. right? There was, there was a liquidity injection because he was trying to get ahead of this whole right. Y2K dynamic and all this stuff. So let, let's go just into major things the Fed has done. As you look back on that period, and given that you lived it, obviously, would you consider that to have been a mistake in Greenspan thinking in the Fed as an institution approach towards trying to front run a risk or, or not? We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Gayad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the lead lag report. And now, back to our discussion. To me, yeah, to me, the mistake is for the central banker to tilt any kind of way over, like to tilt loose or to tilt tight over the long term as a backdrop for how they look at things. And I, I, I think that that sort of began with him that sort of thinking. And, and I think it really, like, it really started for me. And I remember the moment when long-term capital blew up. And I was actually, I was with Porter Stansberry and his then partner, Steve Sugarroot, when they, they, they were just, they hadn't started, they were just writing separate newsletters. We all worked for the same publisher and we were all writing separate newsletters. And we were having lunch. We were walking across the street and they were talking about, it was like August I want to say 30th, 31st, 1998. And they were talking about what the Fed was going to do and all this stuff. And I I just have that moment burned into my brain as the beginning of of what you're talking about. Then after that, we liquefying, as you put it, in the in the years immediately following there. So I think that the mistake, you're right. People talk about everything they do wrong and and nothing that they do right. But I just think that. The big mistakes, it's, it's the big ones that I'm concerned with. It's tilting loose over a long period of time. Clearly, when you see zero, the policy rate is zero from 08 to 2015, like, that's a little bit extreme. 
right? We're, we're, we're really, that's really a fearful way of doing that job. And I, and I, I think that's the big mistake is to tilt one way or the other as a backdrop for all your other policy. So, so, okay, so let's talk about that because that's obviously post-GFC. Granke's obviously paranoid, right? That the recovery is going to be slow after Lehman. Now, the thing, so let's talk about yeah, Renanke's response post-GFC, because I think a lot of this does start, obviously, uh, with him. Um, he was paranoid, right? He was worried about unemployment, the unemployment rate not going down fast enough post-Lehman. The economy was languishing, and his bet... So what I was saying was that, let, let's take it to the GFC. Branke comes in and decides, you know what? He can always raise rate to counter inflation, so uh, the, the risk is not doing enough. So he starts with the aggressive policy of zero interest rate dynamics, QE1, QE2, twist, QE3, all this stuff. Which of those policies, with the benefit of hindsight, you know, do you find to have been the biggest mistake? It's more than just, I think, the argument that they kept rates too low for too long. It's that they kept on up in the ante. Yeah. But for me, though, I will say something that, about that period. You could say, okay, well, he was scared because of the GFC and unemployment you mentioned. But again, for me, there was something deeper going on there. The guy, okay, I hope that's better. Yeah, I yeah, perfect. Okay. So, so start from the beginning, because the whole thing sounded a little bit uh, garbled. Let's start from the beginning. On the, on the, you said there's a bigger concern. Yeah, the bigger deeper. concern is not whether it was like QE1, 2, twist, whatever. I think the big enchilada was 0% for better part of seven years there from 08 to 2015. And, but I think it was, well, I was saying it was when Bernanke sold to tilt very hard dovish. Because if you recall at that time, he said, we are not going to do that again. That being the Great Depression. Okay. Can you hear me? Am I coming in all right? Yeah. Good. So, so that, to me, that was really what set the rest of it in motion. Once you realize that the guy cut his teeth in academia writing about the Great Depression, and that at that moment, he was telling the whole world, what, dear God, whatever we do, we are not doing that again. That sort of, that led to all the rest of it. And it, in hindsight, admittedly, explains why going to zero is one thing, right? But staying at zero for year after year after year, it was the most extreme thing in history. And other central banks going negative, just the most extreme thing literally in 5,000 years, if you're a reader of Sidney Homer in the bond market. Just an unprecedented moment in all recorded history. And I don't know. I think, I just think we're only beginning to get a whiff of the kind of damage that that does. Okay. So that's, that's actually a good direction to go because I, it, it, yeah, there's, there's the argument around long and variable lags as it relates to the Fed's policy actions last year impacting markets, the economy right around now, part of my credit event thesis. But then there's the, the ultra-long and variable lag, which is you're talking about a decade plus of beyond easy money. And to your point, it was more than just the Fed. It was all you know, global central banks across, across everywhere. First of all, let, let's get into the minds of the policymakers. Presumably, there, were, there, were, there, there was dissents, right? There must have been both in the Fed and other international central banks saying, maybe we should actually start to act on this, but they were just afraid, right, of, of being the first ones to do it. Why is it that it was such a global correlation in terms of monetary policy. You'd think that at least one central bank would really try to be the leader. Yeah, I don't know if I can really answer that. 
But it makes sense that when the guy running the U.S. dollar says we're going to zero, everybody else has to. And there were, I was reading Edward Chancellor, The Price of Time, and he was talking about some people who tried not to. They tried to resist. The pool of the almighty dollar just made it impossible for them to do so. If it had been some other, the yen, for example, didn't seem to have that effect on the whole world, right? So I, I think once, once the folks running the dollar decide we're going to zero and, and staying there for year after year, it's hard to resist. Is, is there any argument that they, they were doing that and, of course, doing QE because, let's, let's face it, they were also financing an ongoing war on terror, Afghanistan, Iraq. There was a lot of, war cost a lot of money and need cheap yeah. financing for that. Oh, sure. Sure. War is like one of the standard harbingers of inflation, right? And you go, you go back to World War I. It was like gold standard for a century from the end of basically Napoleonic War until, until when? Until World War I. Hey, we got to pay for this war. Screw gold for a while here. So yeah. Yeah, exactly. There were things to pay for. There were politically important things to pay for. And it sure didn't hurt that we could borrow at the lowest rates in all recorded history to pay for them. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think the other part of that is, is, of course, the whether it was an intended consequence or unintended consequence, it's just the reality. To me, the, the biggest problem with zero trade policy and all this QE was it, it severely widened the wealth gap, right? Because it favored asset yep. holders as opposed to, opposed to income. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. Yeah, yeah, you can see, you can look at the Gini ratio charts that Rudy Havenstein likes to put up and just see it glaring at you, right? And that's the way it works, right? When, when, when you do something that is fundamentally supportive, or I, I want to use the word inflative, inflationary towards asset prices and punishes savers and the way wages have gone for decades here, look, it, it's clear what's going on. I, I'd hate to be a conspiracy theorist about it, but it's pretty clear to me that they can tell me that they're they're pursuing the dual mandate all they want to, but I'm like, eh, you're worrying about asset prices. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't think it's shocking. The, 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 the Fed itself would say, you know, asset prices are part of the wealth effect, and which yeah. there's some, you, there's some, which I think is is okay. So, so you, you you say that this is this this policy for a decade or so, roughly, preserve and QE. It was the greatest mistake that Senator Banks could have possibly done. Um, how much of it is the, the Fed versus Wall Street? And I say that purposely because the reality is the Fed can raise rates, but unless the bond market allows them room to raise rates, it doesn't really matter. They're also pulled right. into the bond market. I, 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 keep, I, I keep going back to I disagree vastly with the idea that the Fed controls the bond market. It's more the market controlling the Fed and the Fed's following. So, so who, who is the real source of, of, of the blame around all those mistaken policies? Is it the Fed itself or did they feel that they were cornered? 
I'm glad you I'm glad you asked this question because I, I think they definitely felt cornered and they resisted, right? Jay Powell resisted and they came out with all that transitory rhetoric. And then they said, oh my God, we're really going to have to do this. But I, I agree that they they wanted to stay tilted dovish. And then the market was like, no. No, you're gonna you're gonna blow up the you're you're gonna blow a huge inflationary bubble. You're gonna create a big inflationary crisis if you don't do something. And so they finally relented and started raising and fastest hiking cycle in, since then since 1980. And I'm glad you brought this up because I think that the tilt now is actually hawkish. I, I know, look, over the long term, Michael, we all know there is a great war between the banks and the bond markets on one side and the currency on the other. And we all know which one loses in the end. And it's the currency. Got it. Check. I understand. But I believe that my paradigm for J-PAL is this. That, that I think this makes it, my view easier to understand. He is the high school quarterback, he is walking down the hall looking at the picture of the hero from 40 years ago, right? Volker is the picture on the wall. He said, that's my hero. I'm going to be like Paul, man. I'm going to be just like him and I'm going to be the guy who crushed inflation. And so that's his mindset. He's tilted that way. He's not like... The, the, and the expectation, I think, has been built up so much, and Zerp, Zerp will do that to you. It has been built up so much that they're going to pivot. When are they going to pivot? I heard on the previous space, just before this one, there was a question about pivot. And I thought she handled, handled it deftly and said, well, not my area. Not anybody's really, because who can predict what these people are going to do? But I think there's clear evidence here that they're tilted more hawkish. And that they will stay that way because that's like when you're backed into that corner the way they were, and then your transitory narrative blows up in your face. Now you got to say, okay, I'm going to be a different type of hero now. I'm not going to be the guy who kept the economy growing. I'm going to be the guy who killed inflation. And I really believe they're human beings, man. They're responding to peer pressure, right? I'm, I'm sure... Like the conversation around the Eccles building or wherever they actually are is a lot different than the one you and I can have. They're, they have political worries and political type and human peer pressure type worries, just like anybody else. And I think that you, you can read the statements. The last statement, he mentioned the 2% target three times. And we all, we all know that core PCE is their favorite measure, and it's more than double the target. They're seri- we're serious about the target, they're saying. And I believe them. I do. I think they're serious about 2% core PCE and not just for like one quarter. So I, I think they're, they're going to try to fix this mistake. And I think that's a mistake too, though, because there's a whole problem with targets, right? That's a whole separate issue, right? Measures and targets, Goodhart's law. It's just, it, it doesn't quite work. They always, you, everything always overshoots when you do this stuff, right? Well, yeah, so I'm glad you mentioned that because I've, I've made that argument a few times that if you believe they're going get, to get back to 2%, that this is the mean reversion of inflation, 
Mm-hmm. That means they have to go past two percent, and maybe yes, a right deflation. So mathematically, that's the mean inversion is to get the mean to yeah. go past it, right? So exactly, you realize that. I know exactly. Yes, we'll you know, we'll hit two percent, and we'll all be like driving sixty miles an hour, waving at it as we go by. <laughs> but, but, but I guess that's my point. It's like, great. So if you're going to have that, I'd argue the only way you have that is with a shock, is with a credit event. Yeah. Right. Like I, I even in terms of that thesis that I have, and whether the timing is is imminent or not, like. I do think there's an argument to be made that the central banks probably want to see some kind of a deflationary shock to make their lives easier. Right. Yeah. To me, yeah, it'd be easier to to be dovish, right? But I I like I actually I like your timing overall. I even I quoted you in one of my recent weekly pieces about using the term credit event, which I think is smart because look, we don't we don't have to say we know what it is. We just know that if you take like a chart of the 10-year, a three-year chart of the 10-year and turn the yield chart upside down, what do you see? You see a freaking bear market, right? That's, there's a serious trend in place there. And given the other stuff that we've been talking about, I think it, it continues in place for longer than anyone dreams right now. I still think people are, are fantasizing about some kind of a pivot early next year or next year at all. And I just, I'll be surprised if that takes place. Okay, now, so I shared at the top of the space what looks like to be an analytical report or, or a little book of work around a banking crisis, which everyone seemingly forgot about in a, a matter of weeks. We had it lately in March, and then everyone just totally erased it from their memory, even though the credit c- contraction dynamics on the banking side is clearly still alive and well. Um mm-hmm. Maybe talk about that. First of all, the, the thesis behind that that whole analysis and what are some of the things that you put together in that? Well, of course, they they all own the same assets. And all those assets, all that valuation, all the pricing is make has the same reference point. And you if you were Silicon Valley and you the the money was super hot and everything happened really fast, like that's one thing. If you're a slower sort of organization that's not taking in super hot money. Maybe it just takes you an extra couple of years to run into a problem or something. But, so I think that when I look at that upside down chart of the yield, I say, well, if this continues, then, then we took out the easy ones, right? We took out Signature and, and Silicon Valley and the other one in La Jolla. And, and so we took out the easy stuff. So then there's going to be another tier of these, right? There has to be another tier because they all buy the same stuff and they all own the same assets. And so, well, what's, what's, what's ripe to go wrong? Well, we all know about the commercial real estate, right? There's a bunch of it in regional banks. And now we know that auto loans are starting to, the defaults have, have ticked up on auto loans and defaults are ticking up on credit cards. So that makes sense, right? It's all getting more expensive. And Michael, I saw another thing. Auto, auto theft has doubled over the past year. So like, I just wonder if there's people out there, you know, well, I can't afford a car. You know, they, they took my car back because I can't afford to make the payments and now I got to go steal one. But that's a, that's a joke. But there's a lot of distress, I think, in auto and in credit cards. And I think all this way makes it, makes it all this stuff makes its way into banks and other non-bank lenders. And I, I like I said, I like the term credit event because you won't hear me predicting where the blow up will start. 
I'm not going to sit here and say, oh, it starts in auto. It starts in commercial real estate. It just seems logical that when you ramp interest rates up this hard, this fast, that you're going to have a problem. And three banks, I know there's three of the four largest bank failures, so it wasn't nothing. But three banks, I, I don't think, that, that just seems like the beginning to me. It doesn't seem like the end. And I, and I maintain that this whole thing is, has, we've just begun. Right? This, this massive top of what I'm calling the most massive financial mega bubble, it's, it's a two, three year process here. We're like, we're not at the end of the crisis. We're at the beginning, we're at the end of the, of the bubble. We're at the beginning of what I think will be an extended, difficult period of elevated rates and depressed lower valuations. I won't even necessarily say depressed, but lower valuations and probably really brutal sideways actions in stock markets and maybe bond markets too. Which, by the way, it has been the case for pretty much every equity market outside of the U.S. and India. Um, right, it has been a brutal yeah. sideways. Right for most emerging markets, it's been a brutal sideways for most of Europe. Yep, that's right. Europe's been tough, and you can even you can find the you can. I, I suppose it's an exercise in confirmation bias, but you can find the sideways action in fair swaths. I will say, of the U.S. market. Mike Green published that equal weight chart of the Russell 2000. I don't know within the past week or two. I was like, huh. It's Russell 2000, so it's like 7% of the market cap of the 3,000, but it's still 2,000 names going sideways down 2% year to date. So, wow. Okay. Yeah. Maybe, maybe those weaker names start. And we know Russell 2000 is like 15% financials too. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. A, lot of, a lot of that got slammed with the regional bank, but, but I'll take it a step further. I put a piece out on the lead lag side that if you look at a 60 40 proxy, so there are these ETFs that are asset allocation mixes. So there's mm-hmm. AOM, right, which is from iShares. It's basically 60-40 stock bond ETF of ETFs. So the the five-year return on that moderate allocation, asset allocation portfolio, 60-40, pretty much equals cumulative inflation, right? So cumulative performance on 60-40 is the same as inflation over the last five years. So there's also this other dynamic where I think everyone's being fooled by classic money illusion. It feels like they're richer because of their portfolios. Mm-hmm. But after inflation, the reality is on a real basis, nobody, a lot of people haven't gone anywhere for a while. Now, a lot of that's obviously because of yeah. bonds. I wonder now if stocks start end up being the, the drag. Yeah, right. So the, the reverse wealth effect, right? Yeah, I, I think so. And if you look at, right now, it's an odd moment, isn't it? It's, it's, it's tough to think about like, unemployment scraping these multi-decade lows and interest rates just cranking up and up and up. And this bond is what I'm calling a three-year bond bear market. But if you look at like the Census Bureau puts out median household income, that peaked in 2019, right? So you can, you can tell me, hey, Dan, the in, inflation prices doubled. CPI doubled back in the 70s over a pretty quick period of time, and then some. And it's just plus 16% at this point. Okay, but people are in pain with unemployment scraping these lows and still, and the medium income still down and rates are still up and the defaults are, are, are at basically post-GFC highs in auto and credit cards. 
that is that doesn't sound good to me. Yeah, I don't I don't disagree. Okay, so so let's talk about what do you what do you do about it, right? As a as a backdrop. First of all, well, first of all, I think it, it it is at least to me it's still clear that a recession is coming because the yield curve is telling you that. Now it's not a guaranteed indicator. I get it, right? But right, it's it's more than that. It's also the behavior of retailers, small caps, like. If you believe certain parts of the marketplace are discounting mechanisms of the future, there's a lot of actual confirmation that there's there's some real weakness that's at odds with the official data and, and the headlines that are out there. But what do you do about that? If if we're in this kind of maybe frustrating sideways for risk asset, you still got to make money somehow. You do. The good thing about higher rates is that you can do this thing that we haven't been able to do in a while. You you all may have heard of it. It's called investing. <laughs> Right, because there be there starts to be a real, almost at this point, normal looking hurdle again, and that's actually healthy. And I, I looked at what was I looking at some credit union statement or something recently. I was like, you, I can get it's almost six percent in this one account they have. I was like, How are they doing that? But and then another account, of course, it's like basically T bill returns like five point three or something. I was like, yeah. That's cool. I remember when I was a kid opening a savings account with like $4 or something and, and making 5 or 6% or whatever it was way the hell back then. And, and think, oh, we can do that again. That's healthy. That's good. So I, I, I kind of like T-bills at five, about 5.3 or so. And, and starting from there, I, I look at, I just look at individual markets. Like if you think a recession's coming, that the other piece of this, Michael, is that for me, I know I can't predict a recession, so I'm staying away from from doing anything to predict. I say prepare, don't predict. So, you know what? If I think when I look at at T bills at five percent, I'm saying, well, I feel prepared for a recession if I'm able to do that, right? And and then I look around at individual markets and I have individual theses about these different markets. So recession or not, we're going to need a lot more copper, even if all this green energy transition doesn't have. And recession or not, and, and so far, you like higher interest rates or not, if you look past the housing starts, which are not a real economic data point, and look to the construction and the housing employment and stuff, the stuff that really gets into GDP. And if you look at the supply demand, Household formation was actually really good post-COVID. And the supply, of course, sucks because people like me are sitting on these 3% mortgages and there's no way I'm going anywhere. So it's an ideal environment for the home builders and it could last for some time. So there's that. And, and so people think there's a recession coming. They'll look at that and they'll say, oh, that's dumb, right? But I, I don't, to me, I can't just be that kind of, Binary and directional. I just don't do that. Yeah, no, I, I hear it. I, and, and to most people's surprise, if I said that I'm the same, they think I'm crazy. Uh, to me, it's more about <laughs> there's really much more about volatility dynamics, right? There's a link between volatility and direction, right? High volatility tends to be downtrend, low volatility uptrend, but it's much more about volatility dynamics. I, I am curious on the on the extreme value side of things. Okay, you mentioned copper, but in the equity space. Are there are there any interesting subgroups, industries, or maybe individual thoughts with a caveat that it's not financial advice that you're highlighting that could be could be interesting longer term, using your word, true investment, being a real investor. What what what's what's in quote cheap now? Let's see. I ha I have to be a little sensitive here because we have 
we charge people and stuff. But so recently, I, want, I can't give all our picks away, you know what I'm saying? But, but I will we'll name a few of them. Like recently, we looked at Copart and we thought, well, this is a business that is going to be around for a long time, right? Salvage business. And nobody wants to jump. It, it, it's similar dynamics to housing because nobody wants to sell their house and nobody wants you to build a junkyard anywhere near them. And even Copart itself, let alone its competitors who have a model where they're trying to lease land and, and Copart owns it. And they, they bought land in fantastic spots eons ago. And you can't compete with that, right? So that I think that's a really good business. And it's probably going to remain one because those dynamics, I don't see them changing anytime soon. So, and that was one, I think we picked it, when was that? Back in February. And it's done reasonably well since then. I also picked around that time United Health about a month later, because it to me it's like it's a royalty on U.S. healthcare. Basically, if if the I suppose if that model changes, if the way we do healthcare in this country changes dramatically, but again, talk about teaching an elephant to dance or whatever that old analogy was from that that IBM book. It's it's really really hard to change something that big in any rapid period of time. So it's stuff like that. And I think last year we we bought stuff like we bought O'Reilly Automotive. Maybe within the past two years we bought Costco. Like we're really just trying to get businesses that we think will be around for a long time because they're excellent models and they handle competition extremely well. So that's the kind of stuff that we've recommended very recently and then in the past couple of years. Yeah, I know Porter's big on the insurance, right? It's a, a major theme for him. Right. So we did we did Brown and Brown some time ago, actually. That was couple, two, three years ago. Because that's that again, there again, it's commercial insurance. You're not gonna go you're not gonna go like clickety click click online and and, and buy it. You you need the brown and brown folks and they just keep they're serially acquiring these little firms and just letting them run themselves. Again, it's a that's a really good model. And over time, the one of the nice things I know that Porter likes about insurance, especially like property, property casualty, is that it's it's this sort of built-in inflation proxy, right? Because the asset values go up and the premiums go up. What about the opposite of it, meaning just most expensive parts of the market? Now the 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 knee jerk reaction might be technology, but you and I both know that's a lot more nuanced because a lot of these tech companies they got a lot of cash. They're actually not that overpriced from some right. valuation ratios, right? So, yeah, where 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 are the kind of pricier parts that would be ones to avoid? Let's see. How do I think about this? I think of it very bottom uply, if that's a word. And I don't, off the top of my head, I couldn't name you an overvalued swath, except just to say, yeah, some tech names. But what happens to me, what, what I look out for, actually, no, do this. I referred to CAPE a while back when I was talking about a way to look at the overall market. And CAPE is elevated. CAPE is at, it's, it's, it's 30, which is like anything above 25 looks like a bubble on CAPE. And, and the, the other one that I named for the overall market was price to sales. Well, it was three point what two or three or something at the peak, and it's even here at two point three or four. 
is pretty elevated. So overall, the big indexes are still, in my humble opinion, by the measures that have correlated best with subsequent returns over history, still really elevated. So I'm cautious everywhere I look. And for me, picking individual stocks, it's like bottom up. How, how, what are the economics like? And what do I think is baked into the price? That's the other thing. We look, we don't, we don't use simple multiples when we pick individual stocks. We do a kind of what, what's an inverted DCF. Under traditional discounted cash flow, you're basically predicting the cash flow. So you're back in the predictions business, right? So I read this book called Expectations Investing by Alfred Rappaport and Michael Mobison. And we interviewed Mobison once, great guy. And, and, and I thought, well, this makes more sense, right? You assess the current price and then you plug in the inputs to get back to the current price. And then you look at what you had to plug in and say, is this optimistic or pessimistic or somewhere in between? And if, they, if it's pessimistic enough and you really like the business, I think you could have something on your hands. And we bought all the stuff I mentioned on that basis. Uh, Dan, for those that want to uh, get access to your research or track more of your thought, where would you point them to? Oh, totally free of charge, investorhour.com. We do a weekly podcast where we got to get you back on there soon, by the way. And we do a weekly podcast with myself and Corey McLaughlin is my co-host on there. And Corey and I talk for a little bit and then we do about a 35 or 40 minute interview. And once a week, totally free, investorhour.com. And you can find more about me at stansberryresearch.com. I think that's a uh, good place to wrap this face up. I've got another one coming up in minutes with Danny Moses. So I want to take a quick breath <laughs> before you. Yeah. I, I'm back to back because I'm traveling the rest of the week here. But everybody, again, please make sure you follow Dan Ferris. I'm a big fan of the way that Dan frames things. Uh, obviously, very knowledgeable and has contributed a lot to the field. So please show him support. And hopefully, I will see you all uh, in about five, six minutes here. Thank you, Dan. Really do appreciate it. Thank you, Michael. Great to talk again. All righty. Cheers, everybody. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at LeadLag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the LeadLag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.